Chapter Three of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Six, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Three: Diplomacy of eighteen sixty-two. The second year of Mr. Lincoln's administration was one of serious dangers and complications in the foreign relations of the United States. It was in this year that were seen the most mischievous results of the precipitate recognition of the Confederacy as a belligerent power. The original mistake of the French and British governments in putting upon equal terms a great and friendly power and the insurgent organization of a portion of its citizens had its condemnation repeated in the events of every month of the year 1862. The complications forced upon the diplomacy of all three nations by this state of things were met by the President and Mr. Seward not only with unyielding firmness and fortitude, but with prudence and skill, a broad comprehension of legal principles, and an instinctive adherence to justice and equality. An international tribunal stamped their action with its authoritative approval after both of them were dead, in a decision which all parties accepted and which will probably be confirmed by the final verdict of history we have not the space to give any adequate abstracts of the correspondence between the state department and the american legation in london during this eventful year but the instructions of mr seward and the dispatches of charles francis adams will remain in the published archives of the department a monument of the unsleeping vigilance the unwearied industry the patriotic devotion and the remarkable ability of both of these statesmen, while through the whole course of these momentous discussions the guiding and controlling hand of Mr. Lincoln is continually seen as the responsible director of American policy. We can only mention a few of the more important events which came under discussion during the year. Among the earliest subjects of difference which arose between the two countries was the refusal of the British government to allow the United States naval vessels to supply themselves with deposits of coal, which the government of the United States had provided for them at Nassau. This injurious action of the British authorities was rendered still more flagrant by permission granted to Confederate vessels to buy and take on coal in the same ports where United States vessels had not been allowed to load coal belonging to their government. At this time also Confederate cruisers were allowed to supply themselves with coal in the ports of England all these acts being complained of by mr adams were defended by lord russell on the ground that they were strictly within the provision of the queen's proclamation of neutrality mr seward protested against the approval by the british government of the proceedings of the governor of nassau as unfriendly towards a power that extends unrestricted hospitality towards the naval as well as the mercantile marine of great britain in its ports and harbors the fact that the British government justified such proceedings by a reference to the Queen's proclamation of neutrality did not alleviate the grievance. The explanation, said Mr. Seward, obliges us to renew the declarations this government has so often made that it regards the proclamation itself as unnecessary, unfriendly, and injurious. But by far the most important subject of discussion in its immediate and ultimate bearings was the building and fitting out in English ports of Confederate cruisers to destroy the commerce of the united states in reviewing this long correspondence lasting through several years one would hesitate to say that the british government was actuated by feelings positively unfriendly to the united states 
it is easier to conclude that not being sure which side would win and being entirely indifferent to the contest between the federal government and the rebellion it stood simply upon the letter of the english law without regard to any consequences which might result from such action the fact is that under the eyes of the british government the work of building and making ready for sea these swift cruisers whose only object was the destruction of the peaceful commerce of a friendly nation went on to its end month after month although every stage of the progress of such hostile preparations was made known to the government by the incessant and vehement protests of the american minister in london on the eighteenth of february eighteen sixty two mr adams informed earl russell that an armed steamer was preparing to sail from liverpool to make war against the united states earl russell replied on the authority of the commissioners of customs at liverpool that the steamer was built for the purpose of peaceful commerce to be sent to palermo in sicily and work on the vessel went on a month later mr adams again wrote to the english foreign secretary repeating his conviction that the orito as the vessel was then called was a warship destined to be used by the insurgents in america to which on the eighth of april earl russell replied repeating this time upon the authority of the lord's commissioners of her majesty's treasury the assurance that the orito which in the meanwhile had sailed from liverpool was an unarmed and innocent commercial vessel a week later in a personal interview mr adams again assured earl russell that the fact of the true destination of the vessel was notorious all over liverpool no commercial people were blind to it and the course taken by her majesty's officers in declaring ignorance only led to an interference most unfavorable to all idea of their neutrality in the struggle to which lord russell replied by a polite expression of regret at these circumstances but could not see how the government could change its position shortly after this innocent trading vessel arrived at nassau where she found her destined confederate commander and after some futile legal proceedings sailed for mobile bay which she entered under the british naval flag and thence sailed to begin her career of destruction on the ocean under the name of the florida and the flag of the confederacy meanwhile a more serious violation of the friendly obligations of england was in progress in the port of liverpool a vessel called at the time by her dock number of two nine zero but which afterwards achieved a wide notoriety under the name of the alabama was in process of construction in that port and preparing for sea under circumstances which left no doubt whatever of her errand one of her owners was mr laird a member of parliament who had distinguished himself by a conspicuous advocacy of the confederate cause in england and those in charge of the vessel emboldened by the action of the government in the case of the orato made no special effort to dissemble her object and purpose mr adams brought these facts to the notice of lord russell on the twenty third of june and the lord commissioners to whom the subject was referred reported with unusual promptitude only a week later that the fitting out of the vessel did not escape the notice of the revenue officers but that as yet nothing special had come to light the vessel was intended for a ship of war it was reported to be built for a foreign government but the builders were not talkative and there were not sufficient grounds to warrant her detention mr adams unable to gain the attention of the government ordered the council at liverpool to lay all the facts in his possession before the commissioners and requested captain craven commanding the united states ship tuscarora to endeavor to intercept the cruiser on her way out the council performed his duty with so much energy and fullness of detail that the commissioners felt bound to give the subject further attention 
but they still insisted july fifteenth that there was not sufficient prima facie proof to justify seizure of the vessel undaunted by these repeated rebuffs mr adams continued to ply the foreign office with documents of the most convincing character and on the twenty fourth of july sent lord russell an opinion of one of the most eminent english lawyers mr collier afterwards lord monkswell declaring positively that on the case as presented it was the duty of the liverpool authorities to detain the vessel and that they would be incurring a heavy responsibility in allowing her to go he added it appears difficult to make out a stronger case of infringement of the foreign enlistment act which if not enforced on this occasion is little better than a dead letter it is claimed on behalf of lord russell that this most important letter only reached him on the twenty sixth and that it was immediately sent to the law officers the next day was sunday and it was the afternoon of monday the twenty eighth before the law officers began their leisurely examination of the case even while sir roundell palmer and sir william atherton were examining the papers the two nine zero left her moorings and anchored in the mersey and the next morning before they had communicated to the foreign office their opinion that she ought to be stopped she had sailed away the injunction to stop her reached liverpool too late and the government sent useless orders in several directions to detain her it is said that lord russell and the duke of argyle were in favor of issuing orders to seize her in any colonial port she might enter but they were outvoted in cabinet the corsair evaded the tuscarora by passing out through the north channel and was joined at the western islands by a bark which had taken on at london a cargo of arms while she was completing her armament another english vessel arrived with captain raphael semmes formerly of the sumter and his staff on board a further supply of arms and the rest of her crew captain semmes took control and drawing up the crew read his commission as a post captain in the confederate navy and opened his sealed orders in which he was directed to hoist the confederate ensign and pennant and to sink burn or destroy everything which flew the ensign of the so-called united states of america the flag was raised a gun was fired and semmes declared his vessel duly commissioned in the confederate service the vessel was english the armament was english and almost all the crew were english the alabama sailed at once on her mission of robbery and destruction her method of procedure was unique in the annals of war there was not a port in existence into which she could carry a prize she therefore destroyed every merchant vessel sailing under the american flag which she could fall in with robbing them of whatever portable articles of value she could find on board bonding those who would sign a bond crowding her own decks with sailors and passengers until the throng was so great that there was no more room for them and then putting them aboard some passing vessel captain semmes amused himself by occasionally putting the captain of some petty trader or whaler in irons informing them that it was in retaliation for the treatment of confederates by washington authorities great efforts were made by the american government to track and find this rover of the deep but the pursuit of a single vessel on the high seas is almost like the pursuit of a single bird in the immensity of the heavens while the sabine was searching the coast of the azores the alabama was supplying herself with coal from a british bark at martinique while the wyoming was watching off manila the alabama was enjoying british hospitalities at singapore and in brief she never came in contact with any armed vessel of the united states except on two occasions on the night of the eleventh of january eighteen sixty three she approached near enough to the hatteras a mere delaware river excursion boat under the false hail of her majesty's ship petrel 
to fire a broadside into the american vessel which sent her to the bottom and in june eighteen sixty four she met the kearsarge in the english channel and a just retribution at the mouth of her guns british commerce was itself not entirely exempt from damage from this piratical cruiser many of the vessels destroyed bore cargoes belonging to english merchants and though in the long run the destruction of american commerce inured to the benefit of english shipowners the inconveniences and damage inflicted upon british interests at the beginning of this confederate piracy were not inconsiderable and an attempt was made by british shippers to induce their government and their legation at washington to interfere for their protection by application to the confederate government to grant immunity to british goods on american vessels or failing that to furnish british shippers with letters protesting against the destruction of british merchandise requests which of course were refused on the last day of september eighteen sixty two mr adams addressing the british government in regard to the injuries inflicted by the alabama on american commerce informed them that he had strong reasons to believe that other enterprises of the same kind were in progress in the ports of great britain of such notoriety as to be openly announced in the newspapers of liverpool and london to which lord russell made the dry reply i have to say to you that much as her majesty's government desire to prevent such occurrences they are unable to go beyond the law municipal and international on the sixteenth of october mr adams reported to the state department it is very manifest that no disposition exists here to apply the powers of the government to the investigation of the acts complained of flagrant as they are or to the prosecution of the offenders the main object must now be to make a record which may be of use at some future day the record was made and it proved to be of use there was a moment indeed at the close of the year eighteen sixty two when the british government had apparently some idea of so amending their foreign enlistment act as to give greater power to the executive to prevent the construction of ships in british ports to be used against friendly powers this suggestion was made to mr adams who communicated it to his government and having obtained their instructions informed lord russell that his suggestions of amendment which would make the enlistment act more effective had been favorably considered that although the law of the united states was regarded as sufficient the government were not unwilling to consider propositions to improve it but lord russell then replied march eighteen sixty three that since his note was written the subject had been considered in cabinet and the lord chancellor had expressed the opinion that the british law was sufficiently effective and that under these circumstances he did not see that he could have any change to propose on the nineteenth of january eighteen sixty three the state department transmitted to mr adams a large amount of evidence from confederate sources showing a systemic violation of the neutrality laws in england he laid this testimony before earl russell on the ninth of february saying in his grave and measured style these papers go to show a deliberate attempt to establish within the limits of this kingdom a system of action in direct hostility to the government of the united states this plan embraces not only the building and fitting out of several ships of war under the direction of agents especially commissioned for the purpose but the preparation of a series of measures under the same auspices for the obtaining from her majesty's subjects the pecuniary means essential to the execution of their hostile projects it was a month before lord russell replied to this communication he then treated it as of little importance saying that even if the allegations were true there was no proof in the papers that the agents referred to had as yet brought themselves within the reach of the criminal law of england 
in view of the negotiations for the amendment of the criminal law which had just been attempted and given up because the british government could find nothing to amend mr adams justly thought this a singular attitude to assume and sought an interview with lord russell on the twenty sixth of march lord russell himself reported the essential results of that interview in a dispatch to lord lyons with respect to the law itself mr adams said either it was sufficient for the purposes of neutrality and then let the british government enforce it or it was insufficient and then let the british government apply to parliament to amend it i said that the cabinet were of the opinion that the law was sufficient but that legal evidence could not always be procured that the british government had done everything in its power to execute the law but i admitted that the cases of the alabama and oreto were a scandal and in some degree a reproach to our laws thus in the view of mr lincoln and mr seward a great and friendly nation was put upon the level of an ordinary litigant compelled to use only such evidence as would be valid to convict a criminal in court and was told that although the english law permitted scandalous violations of neutrality no proposition to amend the law would be entertained all through the year the correspondence continued mr adams representing in strong though temperate and courteous language the injuries done to the interests of both countries not only by the construction in british ports of vessels of war for the use of the insurgents but also by the constant and apparently organized efforts of british subjects to break the blockade the risk in this unlawful traffic were very great but the profits were commensurate with the dangers and every successful voyage stimulated the cupidity and the enterprise of adventurous traders so that the evil continually increased to all the representations of the american government the british ministry replied that it was impossible to listen to any suggestion in the direction of imposing arbitrary restrictions on the trading of her majesty's subjects the ingenuity of persons engaged in commerce will always in some degree defeat attempts to starve or debar from commercial intercourse an extensive coast inhabited by a large and industrious population the american minister immediately responded naturally enough that if the laws of great britain were not sufficiently efficacious to prevent proceedings so injurious not only to her own interests but to those of a friendly nation the government should take steps to have those laws amended these propositions were not entertained by the british government they preferred to stand upon their municipal law as at present constituted early in the year the government of the united states by its own unprovoked and unsolicited movement proposed to that of great britain the removal of a source of conflict and irritation between the two countries that more than once had brought them to the verge of war they proposed to provide by treaty between the two countries for the suppression of the african slave trade and for the reciprocal right of visitation by the ships of their respective navies of such merchant vessels of the two nations as might upon reasonable grounds be suspected of being engaged in the african slave trade or of being fitted out for that object a treaty for this purpose was signed at washington on the seventh of april ratified by the senate unanimously and afterwards distinctly approved with no less unanimity by both houses of congress mr seward said of it it was freely offered by this government to great britain not bought nor solicited by that government it is in harmony with the sentiments of the american people not a voice has been raised against it in the country this treaty demanded by the moral sense of the american people was regarded at the time with disfavor by those powers which still cherished the institution of slavery in their colonies it was the special subject of criticism by the government of spain in a conversation with mr perry calderon colantes admitted that spain had herself conceded to great britain the same right of visitation 
at a period of her history which could not be recalled with pleasure the exercise of this right was vexatious and besides the english were always talking in parliament and out of their having purchased the right of spain for forty thousand pounds sterling always putting their money forward and he would be exceedingly glad of an opportunity to give them their forty thousand pounds and have their treaty back again in france the difficulties which presented themselves to the american minister and the questions which he was compelled to discuss were of a somewhat different character from those which were forced upon the attention of mr adams in england in the early part of the year william l dayton placed on record a remarkable admission which was made to him in conversation by the emperor himself when mr dayton was showing the injurious results of the proclamation of neutrality of france and england the emperor declared frankly that when the insurrection broke out and this concession of belligerent rights was made he did not suppose the north would succeed that it was the general belief of statesmen in europe that the two sections would never come together again and this belief he intimated was the principal reason why the concession of belligerent rights was then granted the government of france even more than that of england set forth the inconveniences to which commerce was subjected by the stoppage of the american supply of cotton and urged the government of the united states to take some measures to renew that supply during the first year of the war the american government hoped that the capture of a few southern seaports would greatly modify that inconvenience and were seriously disappointed when it was found out that even the capture of so important a place as new orleans did not result in any considerable supply of cotton as the year wore on the french projects of intervention in mexico took more and more definite shape and the relations of the two countries while they continued outwardly as cordial and as friendly as ever became subjected to a certain strain by virtue of the conviction which was forced upon each that the intentions cherished by the other were not altogether acceptable the opinion in america slowly gained ground that if the french were suffered to establish themselves in mexico the most serious complications might arise upon our southwestern border and the government in france was more or less preoccupied with the question as to what policy would be adopted in regard to the french in mexico by the president of the united states in case of a complete victory of the national forces over the insurgents for this reason the emperor became excessively anxious for some settlement of the american conflict other than the complete and final victory of the union cause and for that purpose the governments of england and russia were consulted by that of france and invited to enter into a joint proposition to the united states for mediation between the national government and the insurgents in announcing this intention to mr dayton mr drawn de la Hoy, the french minister of foreign affairs covered the disagreeable fact with the friendliest and most amiable terms declining even to use so forcible a term as mediation and saying if there were any word which could express less than that such a word should be used in its place mr dayton asked him what would be the result if such an offer should be made and refused he answered at once nothing we will be friends as we have been mr dayton before terminating the interview expressed himself and with such sincerity and frankness that no doubt should have been left in the mind of the french minister to the effect that any such overture made jointly or singly to the united states would be useless and in fact every utterance public or confidential of the government of the united states through every channel of expression from the beginning of the war to that time ought to have shown to all the european powers the utter futility of such measures it was the very foundation of all the president's instructions to ministers abroad 
that such suggestions from foreign powers were utterly beyond their competence to receive or discuss that the rebellion was exclusively a municipal matter the importance of which he had no thought of disguising but with which no foreign power had the slightest right to interfere but undeterred by any such considerations the government of france persisted in its attempt to bring about a joint overture of mediation between the united states and the force in arms against them in a dispatch addressed by the imperial government to its ministers in england and russia it was proposed that the three cabinets should exert their influence at washington as well as with the confederates to obtain an armistice for six months during which time every act of war direct or indirect should provisionally cease on the sea as well as on land and it might be if necessary ulteriorly prolonged the overture said Durand de la hue would not imply on our part any judgment of the original or issue of the struggle nor any pressure upon the negotiations which might it is to be hoped ensue in favor of an armistice our task would consist solely in smoothing down obstacles and not interfering except in a measure determined upon by the two parties we are not in fact to believe ourselves called upon to decide but to prepare the solution of difficulties which hitherto have opposed reconciliation between the belligerent parties he thought the three powers would combine conditions best suited to inspire confidence the government of the emperor by the constant tradition of french policy towards the united states england by the community of race russia by the marks of friendship she had never ceased to show to the washington cabinet even should the attempt fail the emperor thought it might be of use it would fulfil a duty of humanity and perhaps encourage public opinion to views of conciliation the english government replied to this overture on the thirteenth of november while recognizing the benevolent views and humane intentions of the emperor the british government concluded that there was no ground at that moment to hope that the federal government would accept the proposed suggestion and a refusal from washington at that time would prevent any speedy renewal of the offer the government of the queen therefore concluded that it would be better to wait and watch the progress of events in america to the end that if there should appear to be hereafter a change of public opinion such steps might be taken then with a better hope of success the reply of the russian government was equally decided in its refusal prince gortschakoff said that it was especially necessary to avoid the appearance of any pressure whatsoever of a nature to wound public opinion in the united states and to excite susceptibilities very easily roused at the bare idea of foreign intervention even in the case of the french and english governments regarding such a step as opportune the russian government declined to join in it but promised that their minister at washington should unofficially give his moral support to any conciliatory measures that might be taken even at this time when the russian government was giving this conspicuous proof of its friendly feeling towards the united states there was little confidence felt in st petersburg of the ultimate success of the national cause prince gortchakov said to bayard taylor on the twenty ninth of october your situation is getting worse and worse the chances of preserving the union are growing more and more desperate can you find no basis of arrangement before your strength is so exhausted that you must lose for many years to come your position in the world many years elapsed before it became generally known how near the british government had come to accepting or even anticipating the overtures of france for mediation on the seventeenth of october eighteen sixty one lord john russell had proposed a somewhat peremptory summons to the north and south to make up their quarrel but lord palmerston had not thought it advisable 
in september eighteen sixty two lord palmerston himself revised the proposition in a note to lord russell who was in attendance on the queen at gotha lord russell at once gave his adhesion to the scheme i agree with you he said that the time is come for offering mediation to the united states government with a view to the recognition of the independence of the confederates i agree further that in case of failure we ought ourselves to recognize the southern states as an independent state lord palmerston answered in the same vein but when the matter was broached to lord granville who was by this time in attendance on the queen on the continent he protested against the scheme with such energy as somewhat to shake lord palmerston's determination besides this the confederates had not pushed their successes against mcclellan as the english expected and when on the twenty third of october the cabinet met to consider the subject the strong objections of sir george grey and the duke of newcastle were sufficient to prevent action and the next month the cabinet rejected the very proposal coming from france which its principal members had intended to lay before the emperor End of chapter three